0: offers stunning evidence that most Americans censor themselves, except among people they regard as like-minded. On a bundle of sensitive topics like immigration, race, gender issues, Islam and Muslims, etc., this new study found that between 51 and 66% of Americans agree there is pressure to think a certain way about each of the aforementioned topics with immigration seen as the least sensitive and Islam as the most. Meanwhile, 68% report that it's acceptable for me to express what I think, but only among people who are like me. On immigration, 73% feel that way. Gay, lesbian, and gender issues, the figure 70%. This unwillingness to engage around these controversial topics is a significant contribution to our highly polarized culture. So central to our calling as followers of Jesus is to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That means we engage and don't avoid these difficult conversations about controversial issues. Now, parenthetically, I don't mean every time it comes up, you've got to talk about it. Because there's a, you know, you can use your discretion and realize this isn't the best time to talk about it. But it means as a rule, avoiding these conversations is avoiding your calling to be salt and light, as Jesus said that we are. Put another way, Jesus calls us to make the difficult journey from being fear-controlled avoiders to hope-filled first responders. Think about that. A lot of us raise our hands and said, I'm a fear-controlled avoider. Well, Jesus invites us to become hope-filled first responders, meaning just like we've come to understand the first responder, responder—that that phrase, that term, when 9-11 happened, that's really when that that phrase came into our modern parlance because we saw and heard about all the policemen and firemen firemen and women, all the, the, the safety people running towards those two towers when everyone else was running away. So they were saying, there's a problem, there's a need. We're going to run towards it. And many of them lost their lives because of that. And, you know, as you'll see in this passage, if you're going to engage around controversial things, you're probably going to get some pushback at the very least, but that's what we're called to do. So how do we do this? There's a, there's a passage in 1 Peter where 1 Peter is writing to believers who are facing a hostile world that's increasingly hostile to their faith. And he instructs them on how to share the gospel in a hostile setting, but his instructions on how to share the gospel in that setting to those people are amazingly applicable to us when we start thinking about how to engage around controversial subjects. How do you have conversations? How do you have those difficult conversations? You use the same ideas that you employ when sharing your faith. And so we're going to look at what Peter said and he instructs them to become hope-filled first responders by addressing three areas. How they engage in those conversations, what they engage, in other words the content, that they use, that they bring to those conversations. And then third, why they engage in those con- conversations at all. So let's read the passage, and it should be in the outline I gave you, and I highlighted each of those three areas where Peter comments on it. So First Peter chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and don't be frightened. He's quoting the Old Testament. He says, he used three phrases there, uh, gentleness, respect, and a good conscience. So we're supposed to engage around these controversial subjects with gentleness. What does that mean? What does gentleness mean? It was a word that Jesus used, ironically, to describe himself. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest, for I am gentle and humble of heart. And both those terms in the ancient world were, were th- that, those qualities, being gentle and humble, were looked down on. Anybody who demonstrated those two qualities as Jesus used to describe them were looked down on. But Jesus said those are actually virtues. And in our, in our polarized culture today, when the conversation starts, it, the voices usually are raised. It's, it's whoever shouts the loudest and pounds the hardest on the table is the one that wins the day. But Jesus said, that's not how I roll. And that's not how followers of Jesus are supposed to roll. And it doesn't mean you can't be angry. You understand? Anger. The Bible says, be angry, but don't sin. So it makes a a distinction between the the natural emotion of anger at something that might be wrong and sinful anger and the behavior that issues from sinful anger. So Proverbs 15 says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Here's a a truth that probably most of you know, but just to remind you. Issues, these issues that, that are so controversial are around the real world we live in. They're around real people. And issues trigger people for all kinds of reasons. We all are personally involved in these issues in different ways. Sometimes, for example, someone may have been a victim of sexual assault. And so when that issue comes up, and anything around the Me Too movement, they are deeply involved and engaged in it. Now, sometimes they're more engaged than they perceive, and they lose perspective because they've been wounded, and they haven't resolved that enough that they can have the kind of discretion that they might show in some other circumstance. So when we get into these issues, they're going to trigger people. You have to be aware of that. And gentleness is a powerful way to diffuse that. Do you understand? If someone gets triggered and they raise their voice and you raise your voice to get above their voice and then they raise their voice to get above your voice and it just, it's just, you're at DEF CON 1 and, you know, the, the nuclear button is pushed and then, you know, all reason evaporates from the room at that point, right? You've all been there and you've seen it. So he says gentleness is how we're supposed to handle these things. Second, he says, with respect. Now, here's the thing. People are image bearers of God and they deserve respect no matter what opinions they have, no matter what viewpoints they have, they, that God commands us to respect them. And especially in this issue here, we, we are really pressed to remember that we need to respect people who disagree for, with us. And I, I'm just, I could say a lot about that. You, you probably can take it from there. But here's, so you go, how do I do that, John? Is it like something that oozes out of my heart? Well, there's a lot of ways you show respect, but let me tell you, in these conversations, one of the best ways you can show respect is to be a good listener, is to want to really understand what the other person believes and thinks without just, while they're talking, thinking about how you're going to argue with that point. And you can't even remember what they said because you thought about 15 answers to the things that they've said. That is not respectful. No matter what you think, that is disrespectful. It's also very selfish. It's also not like Jesus. My wife said, John, don't wag your finger at everybody. But it's true. We do that, don't we? And we have to work at being better listeners. Because don't all of us appreciate it when someone understands us and gets us? Doesn't it just make you feel loved? And, you know, we teach you guys about core longings. You know, love, security, understanding, purpose, significance, and belonging. And when if anybody understands you, like those five core longings, when they're met, they are pathways to intimacy. That's why we put belonging in the, in the illustration of the hand. Because if someone makes you feel secure, you feel closer to them. If someone makes you feel significant, you feel closer to them. If someone loves you, you feel closer to them. And... What these issues do is they polarize us. And you know what that means? It means to push us apart. And so when we listen, when we show respect, when we realize the person I'm talking to has core longings, I can meet in this conversation in practical ways. When I'm tempted to to talk over them and not listen, I'm going to take pains to step back and even ask more questions and listen to show them respect. Because when I do that, it draws that person in me like this. Do you understand? Powerful thing. A good conscience. And a conscience, you know, the conscience you have when you become a follower of Jesus, you get blessed in that God invades your conscience, and you're not any longer, because of the blood of Jesus, a victim of a, of a guilty conscience or an overly sensitive or hard conscience. Because an overly sensitive conscience, you're just a perfectionist. You're always failing. You just always feel bad, Right? Or a hardened conscience is, I'm always right, you know, no matter whether I'm right or not. But God comes in like like every other faculty we have. The Spirit of Jesus invades every part of us because we're united with Him. And that light shines on our conscience. And here's the cool thing about a conscience it's a very powerful thing. And if your life matches up with what you're saying, it's very impacting when you're having conversations with people. It gives you authority and gravitas that is very persuasive, it's very attractive, and the the, the best way to, to advocate for some position that you believe in is to represent it well, be the kind of person that someone else would respect because of how you live, so if you live one way and you talk another way, you're undermining whatever it is you think you believe and how important it is, it's just true, isn't it? Doesn't everybody find a hypocritical person just, you just want to dismiss them, right? Uh, What do you have to say? And of course the church is full of hypocrites, that's what we're told. And maybe that's true on some level, but the world's full of hypocrites. Everybody struggles with hypocrisy, because you have to live up to ideals that you think are important enough for you to believe them, but nobody does it, not perfectly, But we're supposed to be closing the gap between what we believe and how we live, right? And when we do that in these conversations, and and, and here's here's one of the ways that you can do this good conscience thing in this conversation. When you've been wrong, apologize. You don't have to be perfect. It's amazing how much authority a person has who asks forgiveness and apologizes to other people. You just trust them more because, you know, they're thinking about you and they're trying to be people of good character and people who are trustworthy. And that just makes that person more respected. So that's why Peter says here how we engage, the manner in which we engage with respect, uh, excuse me, gentleness and respect and with a good conscience are, are, are a really important part of talking around these things. Can you see that? You guys tracking with me? So think about the last time you had one of these controversial conversations. How much did you demonstrate gentleness how much did you demonstrate respect and a good conscience? Because I want that to be a takeaway point. So you, you, at some point, you're going to get a fair amount of information here. And, but I want you to walk away and say, what is God speaking to me? Because the two most, important things you're, two most important questions you're always asking yourself is, what is God saying and how am I supposed to respond? All day long, that's it. What's God saying? How am I responding? What's God saying? How am I responding? God's speaking to us all the time. And the question is, are we responding? And, how, and are we responding to the way he wants us to? So, second, what we bring to the table on your outline there, second point, is he says two things. Be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. So being prepared just means you need to be an advocate for a gospel-shaped perspective on these issues. Because to be honest with you, the truth is, all the research that goes into this, no matter who does it, the Pew Research Foundation, Gallup, you name it. There's, there's, there's many professional research organizations out there that are surveying the American public on its attitudes. And the most commonly found truth about Christians and these political hot potatoes is most followers of Jesus do not base what they believe on what the Bible teaches. They base it on the political party that they've been most aligned with. Now, ironically, there are times where the viewpoints of particular parties might line up with the Bible. But it's a coincidence <laughs> with, with most, most Christians' viewpoints because they don't take the time to actually investigate. What does the Bible say? What You know, if you can't imagine certain positions coming out of the mouth of Jesus, you need to question whether you should hold that position. Now, that doesn't mean... Just because you can't imagine it doesn't mean it couldn't come out of the mouth of Jesus. Do you understand? For example, I told Jay I was going to meddle today. Let me meddle a little bit. John Wimber used to say that preachers who meddle are always troublemakers. So, we, uh, should I do that? Should I go there? <laughs> Jiminy Cricket's on my shoulder talking to me right now. <laughs> oh, should I go there? Uh. Let me, let me, it, that was a rabbit trail. I'll, I'll give you, a, I'm going to give you a more sanitized one. The, uh, this week I saw this movie, The Old Man and the Gun. Anybody see it? Anybody else? Only, only two old men saw it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, Sean saw it back there. Okay. It's a, a, the latest ro- Robert Redford movie. And it's, a, it's based on a true story about this this robber, this, this guy who used to hold up banks, and he was, he was an older guy, and he had a gun, as you would imagine, <laughs> And he And he did it, it the story of his whole life, but what it boiled down to was that what was interesting was there was a the story was about this the, 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 there were parallel narratives uh, in in this larger narrative of the the bank robber and a and a Dallas police detective who was trying to catch him and at a certain point in the movie, if you don 't know that what the the character was, he was this really super polite and likable bank robber, so he 'd come up to the he would come up to the teller or the bank manager, and he would just, the people just immediately liked him, and they didn't know he was about to rob him. And even during robbing him, he's taking care. He, take, are you okay? You need to sit down? You know, he's like, he's caring about him. And so, you know, he's like real polite, and they're interviewing all the people along the way that had been robbed by him. they go, he was the nicest guy in the world, you know? And, and you know, and so this is going on, and the detectives are talking about it. There's a scene where the, the police detective, at a certain point goes, yeah, he was committing armed robbery. Everybody's talking about how nice he is, and wow, isn't this great guy? And he goes, yeah, he was committing armed robbery. I mean, do you understand? Only in the hands of a skillful writer could a man who holds up banks with a loaded gun be sympathetic. And what that means is our emotions can be moved by things that are, are not good things. We can be moved in directions that are not good. Like, this is where the me- I'll meddle. A few years ago, th- there, there was a, a big debate in the church about same-sex relationships. And I found friends of mine who were pastors changed their opinions about same-sex relationships and whether they're morally Uh, approved by the Bible because they got to know gay people, and they found these people who were gay were were just loving, kind, friendly people. And they go, how can we discriminate against them and say that behavior is wrong? They're so kind. Some of them are kinder than I am. They're more generous. They're more engaged in their church. All these things. And they go, I'm just not going to believe that anymore. And they switched that whole viewpoint. Now, this may sound hard to swallow, but if you switched your viewpoint about, like, just say, the issue of same-sex relationships, based on the fact that those people were nice, I'm going to tell you before, you were a bigot. Because you didn't hold the view whether their behavior was right or wrong based on what the Bible says. You held it based on what you thought they were, their sin was worse than other people's sin. Because you didn't know any of them. My best friend in the world's gay. And if, you, if you've never known anybody who's gay, they're not all sex-crazed perverts. That's what the church taught for years and years and years, and it was terrible. It was wrong. If you know my friend Jeff, gosh, he's one of the kindest, most generous, fair. He manages a, a, a real successful restaurant in Southern California. He's nothing like the, the caricature, the stereotype of gay people that used to be on TV and movies and in books. What we believe about same-sex relationships has to come from God and his word and not from bigotry or, uh, you know, emotionalism. It just does. That's apart from, I'm not making any comment about whether it's right or wrong because we're not necessarily teaching on that. But Jesus, here's the thing. You might not ever imagine hard things coming out of Jesus' mouth except towards the religious people, Right? But when, when a woman was caught in adultery, Jesus said to her, go home and stop doing that. Now, what if her story was she had a really unhappy marriage? Isn't Jesus kind enough to say, well, I understand. You've you got a pass. You've got a you permanent hall pass. Your husband's a knucklehead, so just sleep with whoever you want. No. Jesus, it came out of his mouth. Stop sleeping with other people no matter whether or not your husband's a knucklehead. Deal with that issue, but don't violate God's goodwill because it's hard to obey his goodwill and so when we when we get into these controversial issues our views have to be shaped by what God says and you'll be surprised if if, if you've never looked at like next week when we talk about we're going to have the table talk we talk about immigration you will be surprised some of you that haven't studied this from a biblical perspective how much Bible there is on both sides of that argument which makes it very difficult to deal with and come down on one side or the other exclusively and because we as Americans I just want it to be one way or the other can't it be just one way or the other John can you make it one way or the other can you wave a wand over that issue and just make it the Republicans are right or the Democrats are right wouldn't that settle it no it wouldn't because truth and here's the thing Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and truth is always personal I don't mean everybody gets to decide What's true? I mean, truth always has to be lived. It's not just an abstraction. It is actually something that we have to embody. Jesus was the way to God. He was the truth about God. It was embodied in him. He was the life. When you were around him, life flowed into you. He wasn't just a way of living. He was the life. The way, the truth, the life. So, President Obama said an interesting thing in 2006. Because when you start arguing from a biblically-based perspective, here's the pushback you're going to get. Don't push your morality down my throat. Raise your hand if you've heard that. Okay, some of you aren't talking to people who aren't Christians, I can tell. Yeah. My best friend Jeff and I just had this conversation on Facebook a couple of weeks ago. And actually this morning, I, I wrote him this quote. Because you know he, he, uh, he really supported President Obama. And <coughs> here's what President Obama said in uh, one of his speeches. He said, secularists are wrong when they ask believers to leave their religion at the door before entering into the public square. Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, William Jennings Bryan, Dorothy Day, Martin Luther King, indeed the majority of great reformers in American history were not only motivated by faith but repeatedly used religious language to argue for their cause. So, to say that men and women should not inject their personal morality into public policy debates is a practical absurdity. Our law is defined, is, is, our law is by definition a codification of morality. I would add someone's morality. Much of it is grounded in the Judeo-Christian tradition. So we're going to be stressed by people who are laboring under the misconception that you, anybody should check their morality at the door when they're arguing for morality. No. We should have a, a marketplace of ideas where they can contend and the best idea and the most persuasive idea, the most winning idea, is going to win the day. And it is the worst kind of bigotry to let someone tell you you can't bring your faith into a policy discussion. Because they are, and they think they don't live by faith, but every atheist lives by faith as much as Christians live by faith. We've talked about that before. So The hope of the gospel is really powerful. The resurrection of Jesus means that evil doesn't win. And when we can argue from a position that is always shaped by hope, if it's shaped by the gospel, if it's shaped by the Bible, it's shaped by hope. There's hope for everybody in, in, the, in policy that issues from love. Would you agree with that? I mean, by definition, how can you imagine something that isn't loving by God's definition of what love is? It, it would be based on our teleos, our design, our purpose. And so it would suit us. Not that it's always easy for me to hear certain things from Jesus that demand me to be generous and forgiving and sexually chaste and not materialistic and on and on and on. Those are not easy because I've acquired a constitution that's been shaped by all my bad choices. And the mistake in the, in the society we live in today by the truth is in you that everybody believes, and, and you shape truth, is that when Jesus comes along and challenges you, you think that's some kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, it's, it's extreme. But it's just extreme because it challenges you. And here's the thing, if you, if you know, if you like Jesus so much that he never bothers you, you don't have the real Jesus. You just don't. If Jesus isn't ticking you off, I'm going to use that word from now on, if he isn't ticking you off on a regular basis, you aren't engaging the real Jesus. You're just not. You can't read the Gospels and not see that even his followers, who were, Jesus is preaching, and they're going, yeah, 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 and then he turns around, and he's, you know, he just mows them down with the loving truth. And they were going, we liked it when you were unloading on those people, but don't turn it on us, but that's the way it works. If he's Lord... He's the only one that's going to always be right. And if you have a God who always makes you comfortable, then you don't have, you're not carrying the real God. And I don't mean that God doesn't love us beyond what we deserve. And that and when we're at our worst, He loves us. But that's uncomfortable. How many of you know it's hard to ask someone to help you? Right? Now, for some reason, it seems to be easy to ask God to help us and hard to ask people to help us. But, but I think if we're honest and we're asking people, God and people, We're kind of being more real. Because a lot of times we'll say things in prayer that we won't say to people. But we should never, almost never utter anything in prayer that we don't tell somebody. You can think about that if you don't agree. Just take your time. You'll see I'm right. Anyway. So are your views about any controversial subject shaped by the gospel? Do you know that? I encourage you to come to our table talk next week uh, about immigration. And we're not, again, if, if you don't know, we've only done one of these before. But our goal is not to solve the problem. It's to have people talk about it and to, and to gain understanding about what people on the other side of the viewpoint from you believe and, and think and why. And just to learn and exercise in listening and sharing honestly and openly without censure and, you know, put downs and yelling and all that stuff. Last, why... We engage with controversial subjects. This is probably the thing that's, I, wanna, I, I put it to the back because I think it's the most important. He says three things. If you look there in your little outline, I highlighted them. I don't know what color I highlighted them in. What color is it? Blue. Okay, I don't have that color up here. So so it says three things. Be eager to do good. Don't give in to fear. And set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Now, be eager to do good. That word good, that's an important word. Goodness is a fruit of the Spirit. God from Revelation to Genesis and back and forth and everywhere in between says that being good, not little boy, you're good, but being good in the sense of living for the benefit of others, living for the common good is the calling of all of the people who follow the one true God. That when God revealed himself to Abraham, he blessed him. He said, I'm going to benefit you, Abram. And I'm going to make you a benefit to everybody else, all your neighbors. In fact, the benefit I'm going to pour on you is so profound that it's going to pass from generation to generation to generation until all the nations of the world have been blessed through you and through your seed. And, you know, I've mentioned this to you before. In the book, by the end of the book of Genesis, one of his seed, Joseph, is saving the nation of Egypt. So that theme is the backbone of the book of Genesis. God blesses us to make us a blessing. And the, the blessing isn't just so we feel good. The blessing is so that we, like Jesus, we sacrifice to make other feel, people feel good. That that's the character of God. God says, I'm willing to sacrifice on your behalf so you are blessed. In, in fact, when you hear the phrase which Christians use frequently, faith without works is dead, he's using The understanding, when he says works, of actions and deeds that benefit others. If you read in James 3, when he's quoting that, he's saying, if if you see someone who's hungry and you don't help them, how does that prove you really believe in God and love the one true God? It doesn't. It proves you don't. Or at least you don't in that moment. And your faith, if it's not dead, it's sick. If you're not living, if, if there isn't a wellspring of benefit flowing out of you into the lives of people around you, that that you gotta check your faith. Because when you connect with the God who 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 life pours out of at great cost, right, the cross. We had the food pantry in here and we never got this back down. This, right, the symbol that that people wear is jewelry now without really knowing what it means oftentimes. That says that at great cost, God blesses. And if you connect with that God, your life has to show it in some way. It has to. By definition, you can't have met that God and it not begin to shape you. And so we, the church is meant to be a countercultural community for the common good. In other words, we challenge the world we live in where it needs to be challenged. And we bless where it needs to be blessed. We honor when it needs to be honored. That's what being countercultural is. But then we live for the common good. We live for the benefit of others. And our checkbooks have to show that. They do. They have to show that. If all your money is being spent on yourself, you have to question, is my faith very deep? It's just true. It's uncomfortable, I know. But it's true. Is most of your money spent on yourself? Whatever intimacy we, you think you have with Jesus, then I think you should ask yourself, how, what kind of intimacy am I having with Jesus? How deep is this intimacy if it didn't reflect it in my checkbook, if it didn't reflect it in my words, in my actions, my attitudes, and just my whole person? Don't give in to fear because here's the thing. These, these conversations are going to create backlash and repercussions and sometimes pain. Because of the reactions of people when you express your opinions and your viewpoints. And fear will grip you and fear will shut you up. Fear will keep you away from engagement. You will be a fear-controlled avoider or you'll continue to be one. Instead of a hope-filled first responder. And that's the, that's the glorious calling that Jesus has for us. But here's the only, you don't overcome fear by trying not to be afraid. Right? The Bible never advocates that. That kind of bootstrap thinking. You overcome fear only in two ways. Perfect love is what casts out fear. Jesus, encountering Jesus. So what he says next is, notice the proximity of these two, these two ideas. Don't fear what they fear. Don't be frightened. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. See, if Jesus is Lord, you will, and, and, and in your heart, meaning you're experiencing him as Lord. Two things will, will be part of that experience. You'll experience a growing sense of security because he's Lord. He's in control. He's your boss. He's the man who, who cares for you and protects you and advocates for you. Remember the, the three young Jews who were in the court of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar? And he said, bow down to this idol. And they said, we're not bowing down. He said, bow down to the idol or else they said, we don't care. And so he, they created a furnace. They were going to throw him in. it. They said, you bow down. And they go, no. They go, we're not going to bow down because our God is bigger than that false God you're all worshiping out there. And he can deliver us. But even if he doesn't deliver us, we are not going to bow down to that stupid idol that you built out there, no matter what. Do you understand? And he got so mad, you know, he, he had the men throw him in there and they, they, they died, except the, the soldiers died, but, but the three young men didn't, because Jesus is Lord. But if they would have died in that furnace, Jesus is still Lord. He's still Lord. See, if you know the worst that could be done to Jesus was done to him, and he still was raised from the dead, it says if you're with him, and you're in him, you're going to be raised from the dead. And oftentimes, you're going to experience some of that resurrection and that vindication in moments, real-life, real-time moments and situations. I've seen it over and over and over. I've told you some of my stories. I could tell you tons of stories of people who, when they stood up for Jesus, Jesus vindicated them in that moment. And it's not about us, but he's not just vindicating us. He's vindicating himself. He's vindicating truth because it's good. Truth helps everybody even if temporarily it rubs them the wrong way, right? And so if we stand on Jesus, if we make him Lord, we get security. But here's the other thing we get. We get love. Because it's hard when people don't like you. I mean, how many of you really like it when people don't like you? Nobody's raising their hand, right? Nobody likes it when people don't like you. And we need to be liked. We need to be loved. It's a core longing. There's nothing wrong with that. You're not really a a sick, insecure person just because you like to be liked. But if that controls your life more than it should, you're probably insecure. And we all are, to some degree. But love is what makes us (sighs) secure, isn't it? When you're loved, don't you just feel secure? I can handle anything when I'm loved. When you set Christ apart as Lord in your heart, there's no way to do that without love just being lavished on you like waves. (laughs) Another wave comes right when you need it. But it comes when you set apart Jesus as Lord in your life. And what that means is you make him the final word over what you believe and what you do. That's what the Lord is. He gets the final word. And when you do that, you take a, a new position on this foundation of security that you never would have imagined you could have discovered. And you will find yourself standing under a waterfall of love that doesn't ever seem to be extinguished or exhausted. It just keeps coming. It keeps coming. And when you have that, it makes you, it, well, it, it gives you two experiences. It, Jesus' lordship will will begin to introduce to you the fear of the Lord. It's this, it's not fear like, ooh, fear. It's a holy awe and reverence of who Jesus is and how awesome he is. And then of the love of Jesus that we sing so much about. Do you think honestly, that people write these songs that touch us so deeply because they were intellectually amazed at Jesus. I was just reading about how much Jesus loves people and I just thought I need to write a song about that. <laughs> Doggone it, you know. I have a songwriting gift and I need to come up with some great lyrics about how Jesus loves people. It, it, it happens when people, ex- they see and they experience the awe of God and the love of God and they start, they, they have a songwriting gift, <laughs> starts coming out and they tinker with it and then we sing it's a good good father and we all cry right now we've kind of worn that song out so there's it's kind of like the tears now are a little bit like oh it's a but you know the first few times i heard that song he's a good good father oh yes he is oh you know we're just crying right any song gets to that point where oh yeah he's, he's a good good father yeah you know but that songwriter i'm telling you that songwriter i know They made Jesus Lord in their hearts. That's how they got to it's a good, good father. And when you get to that place, you can sit with people who you're intimidated by in one sense. They're smarter than you. They have stronger personalities than you. They got that kind of voice that just shuts everybody else down. They they have a mind like a steel trap. And you can just stumble over your words and just say them with love and confidence. And the other person, they may act like a It it, it isn't phasing them. It is a knife in their hearts. Because gentleness, respect, love, and the truth in a package is like the sharpest knife you'll ever see on TV, just penetrating into people's hearts. And we're not trying to win arguments, but we're trying to be advocates for, for the truth in a person, in a community. And we're also trying to listen and let the truth penetrate our hearts. So if you're gentle and respectful, you're likely to be Convinced where you need to be convinced, where you haven't been convinced. So back a few years ago in uh one of the many situations that we watched on TV in Ferguson, Missouri, you remember when Michael Brown was shot by a police officer, he was killed, and there was just right it was just crazy, and it was just on the news nonstop for weeks. The state of Missouri sent a highway trooper there named Ronald Johnson. He was an officer, and he was the guy who we saw on TV, and he was tasked with trying to to bring peace when everybody was trying to tear everything apart. And he just stood there night after night and answered questions and made decisions and engaged, and people on one side of the, the viewpoint of what happened there attacked him when he did something, and, and at the same time, people on the other side of the viewpoint attacked him at the same time. And he just stood there calmly, at least on the exterior, and did his job and helped bring about healing in one of the worst situations that we've, we've seen in my lifetime. But he did it. He's a believer. And if you ever want to hear what it was like for him to go through that, there's a, there's a podcast called Q, like the, the, the letter Q. questions it's it's a christian podcast and you look up ronald johnson if you just go in the q podcast and type in the search engine ronald johnson and listen to that interview it is an example of someone who lived out engaging in these difficult conversations in a way that goes past what probably any of us will ever experience day in and day out but he was instrumental in that powder keg not going off i mean you may have thought it didn't go off (laughs) you know uh, Ferguson burned down. Yeah, but it could have burned down St. Louis. It could have burned down Missouri. It could have burned down Kansas. It could have burned down our country. And that man's wisdom and graciousness and love and humility uh, was was catalytic to that some level of healing happening there. So we have this increasingly polarized and divided society. It's not going to recover unity, any meaningful kind of unity, until... Followers of Jesus become peacemakers and become hope-filled first responders instead of fear-controlled avoiders. And I don't know which one of those two you more characterizes you. Because you may say, boy, I'm not a fear-controlled avoider. Look at my Facebook page. <laughs> that may not necessarily mean anything. <laughs> it is really easy to do certain things on Facebook. and But when you do it with real-life people who differ with you, You find out if you're very persuasive or or what you're doing is being helpful and so I'm not against posting whatever you want on Facebook I'm not making a comment about that I'm just making a comment about the fact that at some point we got to really be real people and truth has to become embodied and Peter it's interesting Peter was writing to people who were in a situation where their viewpoint was not welcome and the wild thing is is more than half of Americans believe that their viewpoint is not welcome in our American culture. Like 60 percent. Well, that, and you go, well, let's just say on anything, there's two viewpoints. How could 60 percent people believe that, that they're not part they're not welcome? That, that would mean there's at least 10 percent that are wrong. I mean, you do the math, right? It just shows you how much we've cultivated this environment in our society where nobody feels like they're a part of it anymore. And it won't change unless we change. I am convinced, told you before, history is going where the gospel takes it. History is going in the toilet if the gospel isn't in history. That's an incontrovertible truth. And I I urge you, I want to just stop for a second and pray and ask you, which one of those three things, is it the manner that you're engaging that God's dealing with? Is it the content? Is it about why? you're engaging, that God's engaging you this morning through what, what we've heard. So just close your eyes for a second and, and ask yourself that question. Lord, are you trying to put your finger on the manner I engage people? Like, do I have enough respect for them? Am I gentle enough? Do I have a good conscience as I engage them? Is that where you're speaking to me this morning, and where you're inviting me into to something better? Secondly, ask the Lord, Lord, is, have I been faithful to try to learn what the Bible says about some of these subjects these particularly these political subjects and the viewpoint that that I should have as a follower of Jesus that I should bring into the world is salt and light have I been lazy have I have I been uh, just persuaded by a, a political party and and media that that just wants to divide us and promote things that irrespective of whether they're the best for everybody. And last, I ask the Lord, Lord, why do you want me to do this? And why have I been engaging or not engaging in these? Has my interaction with you been deep enough to touch what I believe and how I live? And are you trying to go there in my life in some specific area just sit with that just for a moment like 30 seconds okay, so look at me for a second going to Be dismissed. there's something that that the Lord's inviting you into whichever those three points that he's around which he's speaking to you and I hope you don't walk away and just go that was really interesting what John said when you tell someone else about it and you say I wish you would have been there because that's usually your way of dodging the power of what God's trying to say to you because if you're focused on the other person you're already in avoidance you understand? It may be true that it would have been great for them to hear it, but you need to hear it. You're here. So, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? Just between you and Jesus now, when you walk out of here, what are you going to do with what you're hearing? And, and so, I want to just pray for a second. Uh, a lot of us have been sick. Roy's been sick. You guys prayed for me last week. I feel a lot better, by the way. I may not sound a lot better, but I'm definitely not coughing 24 hours a day. It's probably down to about 12 hours a day. But yeah, I'm, it's progress. Every time someone asks me, how are you doing? I'd start coughing. I was about to say, I'm doing a lot better, and I'd start coughing. So don't ask me how I'm doing. But if you could, if you have some kind of physical thing, we just want to pray for a moment before I dismiss everybody. If you have something you, you want us to pray for, you don't have to say what it is. Just stand up where you are. We're going to pray all together. Something's going on. I'm standing. got this cold still lingering. Doesn't matter what it is, how long you've had it, how bad it is, we're just going to pray for you, the people of God. Father, we join our faith with with all of our brothers and sisters who are standing. We ask in the name of Jesus right now, your power would touch them. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on them. Have mercy on them and touch their bodies. Let let your power go through their bodies where the pain is, where the affliction is, where the sickness. We bless you. Come, Holy Spirit, come and, and touch each of these men and women right now. May they carry the promise of your healing. May they carry the hope of your healing.